Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. We have a really important list of meaty policy topics to get to today, which originate in California but have an impact across the country, um, as so much, unfortunately, because it's negative these days, uh, does. Uh, what California does has an impact across the country in terms of spreading these hard left policies um, and so we're gonna really uh, we're gonna need to focus on them whether you live in California or not they're gonna affect you so to help us understand what's been going on it's been a very busy time in California politics recently this is the time of the year where they're passing all these bills and and so on and they're all um, ending up on Gavin Newsom's desk governor of California vetoed them etc there's lots lots going on and um, who better to break it all down, someone who really knows the detail on all of this stuff. That's why we love uh, her as our regular guest. Susan Shelley is with us today. Susan, um, before we get to these, the, the, here are the things I want to cover with you today. There's a bunch of bills that Gavin Newsom has vetoed already. Um, he's kind of at the beginning of the process where the bills are arriving. He's got to consider them. Does he sign them? Does he veto them? He's vetoed a few that have really sent a signal um, th about his potential uh, political priorities, let's put it that way, going forward. So we're going to get into that. There's also something where something important on homelessness, which is actually a, 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 an intervention in a, in a legal case, in a court case, that could have really interesting implications for the fight against homelessness. It's something that you've uh, you've raised on this show many, many times. Part of your three-point plan, as I recall, the Susan Shirley three-point plan to fix homelessness. Um, there's some news on that. Uh, involving Gavin Newsom. Um, and there's also some really big moves that they've been making here on, in California on the climate issue, um, the climate crisis, as they uh, call it. And the media now echoes their talking point about that. Um, climate change is such a priority for them. And they've got some they've made some big news on that, which, again, will affect not just us here in California, but people right across the country. Uh, but before we get to all of that, there's there's something really immediate that is just causing such distress and anxiety for a lot of people. And it's been getting worse and worse and worse over the last couple of years, actually, which is this question of insurance. And when it first started to crop up as a story, it felt almost unbelievable that you just can't, increasingly can't get insurance in California. And then it's really picked up. The pace of the problem has picked up, accelerated in the last, in the last few months where Week after week, we seem to be getting news of major insurers just exiting the state, saying we are not going to issue new policies in the state of California to cover sometimes it's cars, uh, most of the time, and most, most worryingly, um, house, home insurance. Um, and so this has been getting worse and worse. And then just last week, a deal was announced with the insurance commissioner. Some people might even be surprised to know that we have an insurance commissioner. There is an insurance commissioner in California elected. Um, and there's a deal that's been done with the industry, with the insurance commissioner, Gavin Newsom was involved in this to try and fix this problem. Um, so tell us what the deal is, Susan, what, what's going on here? And is it going to make any difference? Well, it's going to result in much higher premiums for homeowners insurance for property casualty insurance in California. Uh, the deal allows the insurance companies to take more factors into account when they set rates than they were previously allowed to take into account. They used to be allowed to take into account only things that had happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Now they'll be able to project into the future what's likely to happen and set rates on the basis of that. Uh, it's going to be 
maybe not so transparent how they figure that out. They're going to use models and algorithms, and uh, it's not really known what those are going to be. But they're going to blame everything on climate change, mm -hmm. and they're going to raise the rates. And actually, what this comes from is a series of consequences from California policies that mm -hmm. go back quite a ways. So I can I can tell you the sequence of that. No, let's you... go through it because this is the point. We want to go behind the headline because right. I remember when we first talked about this and it was first covered in the news, the simple story that was being told was, well, the reason that the insurance companies are leaving California is because of climate change, wildfire risk and climate change, because that is the narrative that is applied to everything. But it's not as simple as that, is it? No, it isn't. The, this begins with the story of inverse condemnation, which is a policy in California that says the investor-owned utilities are liable for all the damage that's caused in a fire that's triggered by their equipment. Mm -hmm. So if there's a spark and it starts a wildfire and you have this wild, unlimited, record-breaking fire, mm -hmm. then they are responsible for all the damage. Well, mm -hmm. this put them into bankruptcy or or danger of bankruptcy. And we can't have that because if these investor-owned utilities go bankrupt, who provides the power? Who's going to who's going to pay for this? How are we going to do this? It comes down to will it be the ratepayers, the taxpayers, or the insurance companies? Mm -hmm. And of course, the final dollar always comes out of the same pockets. It's us. It's all the consumers. We're all the same people. The insurance customers, the ratepayers, the taxpayers are the same people. Mm -hmm. Well, the inverse condemnation thing was not really a problem for many years because, A, we had different land management policies, so the fires weren't as big. Mm -hmm. We used to do controlled burns and clear timber and things that we don't do anymore, so now the fires are much, much bigger, record-breaking because of that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that fell into this, this mess is that the California Public Utilities Commission used to allow the inverse condemnation liability to be recovered in the rates. And there came a point, there were fires in the San Diego area, and they had some uninsured, they had some, the insurance only covered so much of it, and they had several hundred million dollars that weren't covered by insurance. So San Diego Gas and Electric did what they always do. They applied to the CPUC, the Public Utilities Commission, to recover it with a couple of dollars a month from their customers in the rates. Mm -hmm. And the CPUC said no. Oh. And they'd never said no before. And it went through the courts. It was appealed. San Diego Gas and Electric eventually lost. And the day they lost is when these power safety, safe, public safety power shutoffs began. Mm -hmm. That's when they started with these voluntary turn off the power situations on hot, windy days because it was unlimited liability. Right. The land management policies were out of control. The insurance companies ran up all these huge costs. You add to that, that situation, you add to it that we have inflation, and it's much more expensive to rebuild now than mm -hmm. it was. And you add to that that in 1988, we had this insurance commissioner position and these new regulations from this department set out from a ballot proposition, and they won't let the insurance companies raise rates unless they get permission first. So the rates were held below what the costs were, and that's when they started to leave the state. One too many regulations, one too many requirements for yeah. discounts. And the insurance company said, you know what? We're not going to sell policies in California. So the legislature looked at this issue and didn't do anything with it. And so when the legislature adjourned for the session, 
Gavin Newsom issued an executive order calling on the insurance commissioner, who's an independent elected official, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, uh, and the insurance commissioner made a deal with the insurance companies that allows them to raise the rates. And okay. that's where we are. So interesting. There's a, there's a couple of things that I want to dig into. Um, in terms of, so in terms of the utilities bearing the full cost of the, of the wildfires. So that, I mean, it's the, it's the government policy that, I mean, we've talked about this so many times. Wildfires are a natural phenomenon. We have more forests than ever. Um, and the wildfires that we used to have were didn't burn in this enormous out of control fashion causing such damage um and that is a direct result of government policy driven by extreme environmentalism with that which actually shows a real lack of knowledge and understanding of nature by the way <laughs> so so you have these people who sort of pose as environmentalists don't really understand ecosystems and nature if they did they wouldn't have allowed this you know overgrowth in the forests um but it's the utilities that's very i just actually didn't know that so the utilities have to bear the full cost but then they were told they couldn't increase the rates so they kind of stuck um and then you have the same phenomenon with the insurance companies which is if you need to increase your rates to cover risk but you can't because the insurance commissioner told them not to kept telling them not to so, so i want to go into this insurance commissioner thing because to me it seems like a very odd um thing to have an elected insurance commissioner um, do other states have that? It feels weird to have this kind of one per, I mean, you, you don't have a commissioner for other, you, you, who's elected, a statewide elected position in other areas. What was the origin of that? You said it was a ballot initiative that created that post. Yes, it, it was a ballot initiative and it was because car insurance rates had been going up very high and there was a lot of, ups, a lot of upset people about that. And Charges, of course, that all oh, the insurance companies are very profitable, but they're just gouging people. And in California, we have direct democracy, and we had a ballot measure that created a, an elected insurance commissioner and a department of insurance. Now, insurance is regulated in every state, mm. but I don't know how many states have elected insurance commissioners because obviously, if you're running for office, you have to show that you're holding rates down, yeah, you're holding exactly. companies accountable, and this kind of thing. So this is the problem. They, they He created a the elected insurance department creates this set of regulations, tries to hold premiums down. And most mm -hmm. recently, there was some kind of a, a regulation that required the insurance companies to give discounts to people who lived in fire-prone areas mm -hmm. if they did certain mitigation, certain kinds of windows or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the every property was supposed to be given a rating, and then the homeowner could sue if they didn't like the rating and the insurance companies looked at that and they stopped selling policies here. So that's what happened. I mean, it's just, it's just a yet another example to me of just the, what happens when you just get too much government. I mean, the more government, I mean, I've been saying this about the affordability crisis that we're seeing here in California across the country. And it goes right to the heart of the political argument at the moment about Bidenomics and why people are feeling that, you know, despite endless lectures from the Biden administration about how, how, you know, you've never had it so good. Actually, people saying, well, no, we think that everything's terrible because it's more expensive and it really is more expensive in particular those foundational things like healthcare or housing or energy or, you know, education, talking about college. And actually there's something they all have in common. The more that the government gets involved, the more expensive it is. And you've seen that with it, with all this. The other thing I just wanted to bring up in relation to this was when they, when uh, going back to the media coverage of the rise in insurance rates, 
and the and the and the um, companies leaving, and the media was oh, it's climate change, because indeed the insurance companies, when they would say why they were exiting the state, they would they would include climate change, but they didn't just say climate change. I know I actually read what they said, and they said it was the increase in construction costs. And exactly as you're saying, part of that is inflation generally, but also, as with so much else, there's a self-inflicted wound here because of the, and this is an issue I know very well because of the work I've been doing recently on housing that people who are regular listeners and viewers will, will be familiar with in terms of my organization, Golden Together, and our ballot initiative on housing. Policies of the California government, legislature and so on, and, and these agencies have increased the cost of construction. Um, both in terms of regulation, direct fees that are charged, and so on. So it's all avoidable, actually. If you had proper forest management, you wouldn't have the out-of-control wildfires. And if you had the kinds of policies on regulation and housing that other states have, you wouldn't have these out-of-control construction costs. So these are solvable problems, but instead it just ends up in this kind of mess of of you know, government ne deals and negotiations and yes and 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 it's just so bizarrely you know irrational and so symptomatic of the way we do things here in California. Exactly, they make everything more expensive and then they try to regulate the prices, which gives you scarcity because that's what yeah. price controls do. Exactly. They give you scarcity. Exactly. So in terms of the actual deal. What are they saying that you can put that so rates will go up? So they well, I mean, in the end, it's better that you have insurance than you just simply can't insure your home. And it would be better if they did something about the cost. For the drivers of they, the cost increase, right? Exactly. If they did something, if they reformed the inverse condemnation yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, policies. Yeah. So, in any case, if what the deal is is that the companies can take climate change into account when they set their rates, which means anything. I was going to say that's so vague. That's, that's very vague. So that means anything. They can project whatever they want and they can base the rates on models, which are all just guesses. And the other thing is people who haven't been able to get insurance are on the state plan, which is called FAIR, FAIR and that's the um, yeah. very expensive state fund. It's funded by, the, by contributions from the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. So that makes premiums go up also. But people who uh, are on that have to come off of that as part of this deal. So the insurance companies for something like every 20 policies they write for homeowners insurance in the state, they have to write 17 in areas that are in these wildfire prone areas and get people off the fair plan mm -hmm. and onto private insurance again. So it's that's so part interesting of the deal. all this because there's, there's, it's really it's interesting to me how deeply embedded the kind of big government is the solution to everything. Um, mindset is in in california particularly the way the media cover things i saw a story on you know local not i mean you, you, people say well npr that's totally left-wing biased and so on this was the, this was a local news channel not not I don't, generally speaking i don't think particularly biased politically but they were talking about this issue um and and they and then they went into this whole thing about well maybe we need a public maybe we need all insurance should be a public agency for insurance and you and you just think what <laughs> what are you talking about and it's just amazing how on all, and you hear it so often on these issues I mean again you hear any discussion on housing for example and how expensive that has got and rent and rents going up and and, and which is a massive issue. It is the biggest issue for, in, in many ways. Number one issue why people are leaving the state, housing costs. Um, 
but but the answer is well we need more affordable housing funded by the government more public investment in affordable housing no the problem the reason it's so expensive is because there's too much government involvement in terms of the fees and the taxes and the regulations and so on and so right. if you just make it's just exactly the wrong answer mm -hmm. right and you know people think the government pays for it and that it's free no the government pays for it with money they take from people, yes. and then that has an effect on the economy exactly. and on everyone's lives. It's, it's, so it's amazing it's how, how out of control this argument is. And then, of course, you get the, the response. To, so you have government. I mean, very simply put, you have misguided government policies that increase the cost of living. And people say, oh, we have a cost of living crisis. So the government has to help by subsidizing more things, which actually means taking more in taxes and, in, and further increasing the cost of living. And then because the cost of living is going up and up and up, they say, well, um, people aren't earning enough because they can't afford anything. So we have to raise wages and minimum wages go up. And then you go on strike because you're not earning enough. And then wages go up even further. What does that mean? If the wages go up, the costs go up for industry. So prices go up. It, it's just all wrong. It is absolutely illiterate. It's economic illiteracy. And yet in, in the state that, you know, to, you know, I say this often, you know, that in, 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 to me symbolized the absolute best of the American dream and the home of free enterprise and innovation. You have this incredible kind of 1970s economic mindset about, about big government. It's really weird. And two more reasons that we have so many fires that they don't want to talk about. One is that the government has forced these utilities to spend a lot of money on climate projects, and they don't have as much money point. to spend on maintenance of the lines. And so if you have a failure that causes a fire, maybe that wouldn't have happened if yes. we hadn't taken their money away from maintenance. Yeah, and just to, to be clear, when we agenda. say climate projects, a lot of it is EV charging stations. Right. Which, what's that? I mean, even here, we have the highest, I believe, in the country. That's seven. I think it's seven percent of the cars on our roads are EVs here in California. Across the country, it's like two percent if you're lucky, one point something. So it's a tiny, tiny proportion, and tends to be the rich. So this is a subsidy to the rich. So they're t it's it. So you know, regular people's insurance premiums and utility bills and all the rest of it are going up in order to pay for virtue signaling green subsidies for the rich. It's just exactly. crazy. Exactly. <laughs> My goodness. And right. the other thing is we have a lot of fires because of homelessness, because they're allowing encampments in the in all these wildland areas, and that causes a lot of fires also. So these are these are policy choices. Policy choices. That are, that exactly. are very, they're raising the costs of exactly. everything Everything is making it, the cost of living higher, and, that, and, and, and so you're not going to solve the problem until you address those things. All right. Let's look at um, some of these um, bills. The vetoes, right? Because it's been very interesting. So um, they, Gavin Newsom has vetoed a number of bills that were real priorities for the left. And so it's being seen as a indication that he's no longer focused on, on, you know, pandering to the left here in California, which is dominant, the hard left are dominant in California. And that's why he has you know, all the time he's been sort of focused on California, gone along with it, and all these policies have moved in a leftward direction. Now, the argument is he's looking at a national audience with presidential ambitions and therefore has vetoed these bills. So let's just go through the ones he's vetoed that have prompted this conversation. There's the gender affirming care 
thing, which is you 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 can explain. There's, there's that one. There's the self-driving trucks um, that he vetoed. Something about a hum, needing a human in the self-driving truck. That was a proposal put forward by the a bill passed at the behest of the labor, you know, the labor, uh, the unions. Right. And what was the other one? There's something about murderers. The, I can't remember. The other one uh, was going to ban cooperation of the state corrections oh, yes. department with the. Uh, the immigration authorities, federal government immigration authorities, he vetoed that. So this upset his his labor left LGBTQ plus coalitions in the legislature. Uh, the first one, the gender bill, this was SB 957, and this directed the courts to consider whether a parent was gender affirming, or whether the parent affirmed the gender identity or the gender expression of the child in custody cases. So in determining custody and visitation, the court was directed to consider this. Now, the court can already consider this in the in the wider category of the health and welfare of the child, but they were specific about this. And because they put it in the category of health, it would seem to open the possibility that a parent who refused gender-affirming surgery would lose custody hmm. if there was a divorce or if there was a dispute. So is it is it protecting the health of the child to affirm gender surgery or to refuse it? And who decides? The judge? What does the judge note? The child? Eight years old, maybe? Ten years old? Any age at all? This was just... So it was a horrible bill. And it changed the family code in the state of California, which means that it could have bled into other types of laws and other types of situations mm -hmm. where certainly it opens the possibility that parents could use this issue against each other in a in a really vicious dispute over custody, and some of them get nasty, and people will do anything. Yeah. So were you that, surprised that, that he vetoed, vetoed it? No, not at all, because this is a parents' rights issue, and this is something that uh, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida, has made a big deal. And certainly, we know that Governor Newsom is planning to run against Governor DeSantis at some point, mm -hmm. and even wants to debate him. Yes. So there you have it. It's a. a, a Governor Newsom did not want to be on the wrong side yeah. of a parent's rights issue. I would issue say that this right this now. particular one, it's, it wouldn't you wouldn't even find a majority for this for this in California, let alone the rest of the country. I don't know if it's actually been tested in a poll or, or anything like that. This feels, I mean, this a lot of what we're seeing in California really is the product of the very hard left, you know, the activist left. Um, and they get away with it because they have the supermajority in the legislature and they push this stuff through. Um, you see it on issue after issue. I don't I don't believe that. I think he's speaking for the majority in California, let alone on a national stage. I think so, too. I think a lot of people didn't even know about this bill, but they certainly would have found out about it. And it would have been a big political mm -hmm. issue nationally. So what about the um, the trucks? The Teamsters, thing? The, the trucks. Yeah, tell us well, about that. So there is a there's something on the books in California that's encouraging pilot programs of driverless trucks, and the Department of Motor Vehicles is supposed to regulate it. And the Teamsters and the Labor Federation, I guess, were sponsoring this legislation that said, okay, you can have a self-driving truck, but it has to have a, a Teamster in it. Right. You have to pay a Teamster to sit in the self-driving truck. And that's what this bill said. It said, you know, we, we can't let these things go by themselves. They have to have a paid Teamster in them. And the governor vetoed that. He said, no, we're going to try the self-driving thing and it's going to be closely regulated. And so he went against he went against the labor union on that. Interesting. So this is I think that the way this has been framed is a kind of retaining California's edge in terms of innovation and technology. 
I don't. I don't know that it's a great idea to have self-driving trucks. No, I mean, I'm, I'm I, I, I was going to say, like, I'm, I'm, makes... I'm generally in favor of of innovation and technology, of course. But I don't know these giant trucks what? with no one in them. I don't know. It it sounds a little bit intimidating to have giant trucks. What if something goes wrong? They're so big, they'll do so much damage. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, the governor felt that this was not something that the the cost should burden this new technology, and so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 it is actually interesting. I um, on, on this. I mean, he was clearly exact. I, I you know, is a sort of you could say it's a pro business decision. Um, but the, the this whole thing. I mean, it's a huge issue actually because it's a massive employer, and right. and particularly in Southern California. I mean, you know better than even you know, the logistics industry. It's the industry in Southern California, yes. really, isn't it? With the ports and yes, all the, it is. the distribution systems and anyone you can just see it and um i don't know this feels like a real threat to the that employment but of course the argument against that is well that's just, that's true of all automation and progress and, and you know agriculture used to be you know if, if we now have a fraction of the people working in agriculture than they used to be i don't know 100 years ago and we produce vastly more food and that's just progress and you know you grow the economy and new new jobs emerge that's the argument well california has put the trucking industry through the ringer for years over air quality issues, and they've caused many people to have to sell their equipment for pennies on the dollar, perfectly good equipment, because it was suddenly made illegal. All the engines were made instantly illegal, mm -hmm. and they had to upgrade, and then they had to upgrade again. And the costs that have been added to that industry, if they are looking to, to cut costs on the labor side, maybe part of that is policy driven by all of this by the way, really unnecessary overregulation that doesn't make any difference in the air quality. It's just like, oh, let's go a notch further. We can go a notch further. And it's tremendously expensive and destructive. Yes. Well, we'll see. I mean, it's interesting. Again, I, I don't know. I, I was a little bit surprised that he did this. Um, it's interesting. The next one that people are talking about, you mentioned, is the um, immigration one, which seems yes. to cut across the 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 left position on sanctuary cities stroke sanctuary states yes this has there was a bill that was going to ban cooperation between the california department of corrections and ice the immigration customs enforcement and uh, the governor vetoed it so this would have made it this would have been a layer of i, ha I hesitate to use the word protection in this context mm -hmm. but it would have protected people who were coming out of prison mm -hmm. for violent crimes from from immigration officials and the governor vetoed it. Well, so I think that's a, that good, that's a got, good thing. It's amazing that it even got passed. I mean, it but shows you how far left they've gone. They are really, they are really off the edge yeah. uh, in the California legislature. They did some just amazingly leftist things in this session, very damaging to taxpayers, very damaging to California. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that there isn't a little more uh, checks and balances in our in the oh, mix of people who are elected. It's, yes. it's making things very difficult. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's good a, that the governor did veto these bills. Yeah, and it's a, and, and you know, but the, but the, if if it was in the first term, I'm sure he wouldn't have. Do you know no, what I mean? Because he I, needs I, their I support. Actually, I, I actually think it's good news on the election integrity front because the fact that he's tacking to the center before he runs for president tells you that maybe the elections are real. <laughs> that's, <laughs> Fair enough. that's kind of encouraging. Um, 
Then the so the, there was another one. I don't know, but I haven't read about it. But I forgive me, but I saw Bill Isaley, Representative Bill Isaley, in the, Republican in the legislature in the Assembly, uh, tweeting about a bill that Gavin vetoed on m- letting murderers out or something. Do you know anything about that? I think that might have been the immigration. Oh, the immigration. One. Okay. I, I, oh, I that's, okay. That's, I what that's he's the talking same about. bill. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So there we are. Those are the big ones that we needed to cover, right? Of his vetoes. Right. There's Those one the more three. that he we we don't know yet what he's doing, which is AB one. The first one shows how seriously they, they you know this is the big one, which is the unionization of legislative workers, which is an amazing thing. Um, that again, you just that I've just been reading about it actually. Governed for California. If people want to understand the background to this. I suggest you go to Govern for California, uh, who have been, you know, the, the campaigning. It's an organization I know the guy who, who started it actually, just full disclosure, but um, very strong campaigners against government unions in California and for legislators to follow the public interest in making their decisions rather than the special interests that fund them, and particularly the government unions. And his argument is that actually this is a complete disaster if this goes through, because most of the reasons that we have all these problems in California, he would argue, this guy called David Crane, you can read the full statement on Government for California's website, um, goes back to the granting of collective bargaining rights to government employees in California, starting with local and municipal workers, then it went to teachers under Jerry Brown, and then again under Jerry Brown, I think it's 1978, to all government employees and state employees in California. And now they're doing it for the legislature. So basically, he's saying you could have a situation where you know, the legislative aides are fun, and people who write the laws um, are funded by their unions and they're, and they're funded by special interests. And they're, they're trying to, um, you know, act in the public interest or, or supposedly acting in the public interest. So he thinks it's very significant and he's calling on Gavin to veto this one. So we'll see. We'll follow it. Um, it's a very strong argument. Uh, let's go to this Boise uh, story. This is on homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. This is something we've we've talked about before. Remember, you wrote a brilliant piece where you laid out what really needs to change in order to deal with the homelessness crisis. Um, one of them was this was the bill that uh, forbids that bans any state money from going into homelessness projects that don't require sobriety that, re- don't, that, right. that don't insist on people being yeah included. the housing first the housing, housing first, first exactly. policy right. is that SB thirteen eighty something can't remember I don't remember the number it was written by Holly Mitchell in twenty sixteen yeah. and and it um, yes it it says that all these public publicly funded housing projects for the homeless cannot have any requirement for sobriety. No one can be required to go into a sobriety program as a condition of housing. Exactly, uh, and that is just a recipe for failure. So that was one of so your three points. Uh, one another of the three, one was um, to to ask the federal exactly. government for a waiver from the IMD exclusion, which IMD stands for Institutions of Mental Disease, mm-hmm. and that means large psychiatric hospitals. Currently, you can't get reimbursement under Medi-Cal or Medicaid for any care in any facility with more than sixteen, 16 beds. beds. Yeah. And that means that we never have enough beds except in prison. So we wait until someone injures someone else, and then we put them under lock and key in prison. Mm-hmm. And the jails are the largest mental health facilities in the country, and that's terrible. So we need to get an exception. We need to get an exclusion from that IMD exclusion, which we can get. Mm-hmm. The federal government is granting those, and Governor Newsom will not apply for it. By the way, does this connect to this ballot initiative that he's he's backing for next in the spring in March? I think 
which is a bond issue for yes, mental a, health facilities. What's six, this about? It, well, it's a $6 billion bond for so-called mental health housing, not hospitals, mm -hmm. not with care of the quality that you would get in a hospital, but rather housing with attached services, which is the same thing we have now, but on a much bigger scale and paid for with debt at current interest rates. So it will be twice as expensive as what he's proposing because of the, the long-term interest costs. And it's going to have the same structural problem, uh -huh. which is you can't require people to be sober or to go into these programs or use That's these services. That's really interesting. We, we should talk about that more uh, as because when we get nearer the time in terms of, because people will want to know how to vote on these initiatives. I mean, that just sounds... So he's completely missing the point. And actually a way of dealing with so he's he's in the right he's over the target as it were where there's a problem with mental health provision but this is completely the wrong approach which is more money for things that will basically be the same as what we have now rather than what you're talking about which is um getting a med a, a waiver that would enable us to have larger scale mental health right medical, and, and he's also he's also rerouting there's a separate bill that reroutes money from the the one percent tax on millionaires uh, that's supposed to go for mental health services, new services. Mm -hmm. He wants to reroute that money into housing. So this is more of giving the money to developers to build things without any this whole thing. understanding of what makes it work for the problem solving. Exactly. Because it won't. It won't that's what's so infuriating about money for housing is that, you know, the, right. the, as, as I focused on with my ballot initiative, the problem is that it's already, it's, you're already charged. The reason it's so expensive is because they're charging taxes on house building. They call it impact fees. It can be 200,000, 300,000 per unit of housing that's already being charged. Now, if you just stop that, then housing won't be so expensive to build. And then the other part of it is these endless environmental lawsuits that just tie up the developers in, in, um, in, in court for years. And then of course, the one we've talked about, the, the, this, the other climate thing, the VMT, vehicle miles traveled, where they tr try and block housing that way. So these are the drivers of the housing crisis, but instead it's always like, give us more money. So we'll give it to develop, I mean, the whole thing. It's going back to our first conversation. Anyway, the th the, I, I don't want to get off track because on the, the thing that we're going to talk about, the new thing is the third point. So if, let's just go back to your hom homelessness plan, the Susan Shelley plan, as I call it. So there's overturning the ban on the requirement that, that bans sobriety, um, housing first. Secondly, the way- We return housing first. We return get a housing waiver, for, from, waiver the... from the Medicaid. And the third one was the this one we're gonna talk about, which is the Boise ruling, which is the Ninth Circuit ruling a few years ago in a case involving, it was the case of Boise in Idaho. And it was about, the, and, it, and it basically says that you cannot require someone, you cannot require someone to get off the streets and into shelter unless you have enough shelter for everyone. Is that the, am I getting that right? Yes, you are. This, this goes back, the, the lawsuit started 20 years ago over a regulation in Los Angeles that made it a crime to sleep on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And the, there was a lawsuit over that and there was a settlement. And Los Angeles settled it and said, well, all right, we won't enforce it anywhere in the city. So now they're sleeping on the sidewalk everywhere in the city. It's only supposed to be at night, but they don't enforce it during the day. Mm -hmm. And we have this growing, growing problem. There was another loss. That, that case was settled, and the judgment by the Ninth Circuit was vacated. But the Ninth Circuit came back and used exactly the same reasoning against cities in this case called Martin versus Boise. It, it said that you cannot, you cannot have, you, 
It was about criminalizing, actually. But mm -hmm. what it said is that you can't arrest people for sleeping on the sidewalk or camping in public unless you have enough shelter beds for everyone. Mm -hmm. But they didn't define what shelter beds were. Mm -hmm. Since that time, there have been more cases, and another one went to the Ninth Circuit, and they started to define shelter as basically an apartment. You know, it's not just a congregate shelter, but right. they left it very open, how nice it has to be and where it has to be and all kinds of things that were just very fuzzy, and you had to keep going back to court to see if the judges would approve it. There is a case out of Oregon, Grants Pass, Oregon, which asks the Supreme Court to revisit the Martin versus Boise standard, because after five years of this, the US Supreme it's court. a mess, the U.S. Supreme mm -hmm. Court. It is a mess in all the Western states. It's, it's Oregon, California, Idaho, it's everywhere. It's out of control, and, you, and every city has to go back to the federal judges, and the federal judges are like, homelessness czars. What do they know yes. about the policies? What do they know about the costs? There's one who was managing a lawsuit in Los Angeles who ordered the city and county to put a billion dollars in escrow for him to decide how to spend. No, even the Ninth Circuit turned that down. So this is the problem. Now we have this case out of Grants Pass, which is asking the Supreme Court to rule that cities can enforce an anti-camping ordinance in a reasonable way. And even the governor of California has filed an amicus brief saying that it has to be this way. The cities have to have the power to enforce reasonable health and safety mm -hmm. regulations. It's quite an interesting brief that the lawyers wrote for him. It talks about the fire dangers, mm -hmm. the medieval diseases, the deaths from overdoses, all of the chaos that it's causing in the communities, the businesses that are going under, the fact that the sidewalks aren't usable, that the public parks aren't usable, and the fact that the cities are not able to do anything about it because they keep getting sued and no one knows what the judges will say. So it's an impossibly expensive situation in every regard and not good for anybody. How can this case go straight to the Supreme Court? How does that work? It has already been through the Ninth Circuit uh -huh. and the Ninth Circuit ruled against the cities mm -hmm. And then they, they did an en banc appeal, and the ruling was 14 to 13 against the cities. 13 of the judges on the Ninth Circuit said, yes, the cities have to have this power, but 14 said they didn't. And so that's what there's a split in the circuits. It's different in the 11th Circuit. I think it's different in the Fifth Circuit. And the Supreme Court has to settle this. They have to get in there, and they have to say mm -hmm. that there's a compelling reason for cities to enforce so when does it basic get to the health Supreme and safety Court? laws. How does this work? Well, where it stands right now is the Supreme Court has been asked to take it up, mm -hmm. and we will see if they will. That's it's where it It's really interesting. Can you just tell me a little bit about the Ninth? Because people may be listening, because we hear, I think we hear a lot about the Ninth Circuit. What even is it? Who is it? What, who are these people? What, what's it all about? It's, these are the federal judges that are appointed to the appellate court. This is the, the United States Appeals Court, mm -hmm. and it's divided into districts, and each district has a number of states in it. Mm -hmm. And the Ninth Circuit is where California is located. And it used to be quite liberal, and then after the Trump administration, it became a little less so because different different judges were appointed. Uh, but it used to be nicknamed the Ninth Circus by some people, and many, right. many times it was overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh -huh. Uh, it's it's less liberal now, but it's retaining some of its characteristics from the past. And in these homelessness cases, it's an extremely grave situation. So it's, and the it's Supreme the federal, Court has so to a, take it it's the, it's, the, it's the highest tier of federal court before federal you get appeals. to the Supreme Court. That's right. The lower level is the district court, mm -hmm. and then there's the appellate court. 
and then there's the Supreme Court. The thing that I don't understand is like how this one ruling of a court that you know can have such a effect on policy. I mean, why don't they just ignore it? I honestly, it's it's, it's crazy well, to me. And you do have you know like that we had the mayor, you know, okay, small town Coronado by San Diego. He was saying, well, he he made it work. I suppose his point was that you know he didn't he he did provide the shelter, so he was in compliance. Well, he didn't get sued. Yeah. He could have been sued for the shelters that he provided. Mm -hmm. He could have been sued for moving people over the border to another city. Mm -hmm. But the cities that get sued are typically larger, uh, more impact on that. And Los Angeles has been sued a number of times. So they get sued by who? Sides. By homelessness advocates and activists? By homelessness advocates. There's a couple of them that are particularly prolific at filing these suits. Mm -hmm. And Los Angeles also got sued by a group of business owners mm -hmm. and uh, residents of downtown and even homeless individuals downtown. Uh, that's the LA Alliance lawsuit. I believe it's, I think it's the LA Alliance for Human Rights. It's is, maddening. Is the name of the it organization. really is maddening. I mean, of course we all want, you know, legal protections and the, and so on. But like there's, there comes a point where the, we also, you know, people get elected, politicians get elected to solve problems. And if you get elected on a platform to do something and people have voted for it, you should be able to do it, it seems to me. Well, the problem here is that we have this, we have, this is a federalism issue. The federal courts have usurped a lot of state authority mm -hmm. through, the, through the whole 20th century. They did this. They did the Bill of Rights basically one right at a time. And they said, this is going to be enforced uh, on the states. The Bill of Rights originally applied just to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the 20th century, the Supreme Court, in a series of landmark decisions over 100 years mm -hmm. of landmark decisions, they took each of these rights individually and they said, well, unless the state can prove to us that they have a compelling reason, mm -hmm. they can't have this restriction on a fundamental right. And they decided which rights were fundamental and which ones weren't. And they decided what's a compelling reason and what isn't. And it's totally subjective, totally, yeah. completely subjective. And that's why we are where we are, where a city can be sued and you have to go to a federal court and nobody knows what's a compelling reason and what's a fundamental right. Because it's completely made up out of the air. Yeah, I mean, look, and the, that's how we got where we are. There's two points. So, what what is the actual right that's being upheld here, in terms of the, this not They're not being able to to, to put a homeless the, person in a shelter? The Eighth Amendment right against cruel and unusual punishment. But it's not punishment if you're taking someone off the streets and putting them in a shelter. It's ridiculous. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Come on. And that's what they're arguing in this Grants Pass case out of Oregon. They're saying this has been so twisted by the Ninth Circuit that they're saying. That the conduct is not the status of someone. Uh -huh. you, you can't criminalize being an addicted person, no. but you can criminalize conduct yes. by an addicted person. Well, they have extended it so you can't. So now being Amazing. homeless is a status, but camping in a in a, in a forest <laughs> with an open flame in fire season, you can't criminalize that either. It's all very uncertain, and so they want clarity from really the Really interesting. Court. And for, last, last question on this is what about the Tenth Amendment? I mean, that's incredibly clear that if it's not in the, I, I cite it all the time, that if, if, if a particular power is not in the, is not defined literally in the constitution, then it is, here's the, the quote is, it is reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Mm -hmm. That's the hundred years of cases overriding the 10th Amendment. Why doesn't anyone make a fuss about that? Why don't we don't bring some 10th Amendment cases? 
Well, if you really want to know, I wrote a book called How the First Amendment Came to Protect Topless Dancing, and it goes through the whole hundred years of cases to explain exactly how we got where we are, that federal judges are making these decisions and these balancing trade-offs. The short answer is that the whole civil rights, all the civil rights law was done through this sort of Mm -hmm. process, through the due process clause, through interpretation, and and that makes it all untouchable. Really interesting. You know what? I we've run out of time, Susan, because I I want that this the climate stuff that we we're going to get to is like really big and important. So let's save that for another time because because just in case anyone thinks that uh, California's gone all moderate with Gavin Newsom vetoing these hard left bills and you know trying to you know go to court to solve the homelessness problem in a sensible way, that's all true. But at the same time, California is. At taking action on climate in extreme ways. One of them is suing the oil companies. He's part of that with Rob Bonta, uh, suing the oil companies. And then the other one is this bill, on which is just so preposterous, about um, requiring the disclosure of carbon emissions from any company that does business worth over a billion dollars, uh, over a billion dollars, billion dollar companies that do business in California. Um, doing businesses defined as having either sales of six hundred thousand or so dollars, or any employee, any employment costs over sixty thousand. So it's basically one employee, pretty much, um, for most most companies counts as doing business in California. And you're going to have to report all your carbon emissions, not just yours, but your supply chain, your customers, everything. The compliance costs are totally ridiculous. It'll make no difference to climate whatever and yet it's another example of like where we started this is an endless overcomplication of everything exactly and what they want to do is they want to hold these companies accountable for their climate change whatever and so they'll have all this data and then they'll be able to formulate a cost per emission that they can try to shake down out of people <laughs> and it's going to raise the cost of everything so it's unfortunate everything does and then they and then we're back to where we started the cost of living goes up so what's the answer oh more go, you know more government to help with that even though they're the ones that are causing it i don't know well one day we'll turn it all around susan that's what we're here, we're here to do fighting working for common on sense. It. exactly <laughs> um brilliant thank you so much for helping us understand all that absolutely brilliant as always um really really appreciate it and we'll see you very soon so thank you thank you steve Thank you very much, Susan. Brilliant, as always. If you want to have more of Susan Shelley and all our other fantastic guests to understand what's going on here in California, across the country, and all the big issues of the day, make sure you follow us at The Steve Hilton Show here on Twitter, sorry, X, um, and, of course, on Spotify and Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to us, watch us, just join our movement for change. The Steve Hilton Show. We'll be back soon for our next episode.